You know what I remembered when we sat down to record today? What? This book is gay as hell. <laughs> is it though? Like, have do we need to read some fan fiction and make sure because it could just be us like hoping it is. I don't know. Like the way he talks about women is like, I feel like the old fashioned sexist way of being like, it's not me. I'm not gay. I just don't want to be with any women ever. <laughs> That's how I get it. So I don't know. Well, let's see what this chapter three has in store. <laughs> chapter three has a bukkake. <laughs> All right, welcome back to Rebar Reads. We're reading The Great Gatsby, and I'm joined with comedian, expert, amazing, I ran out of words, it's late on a Sunday night, Jessica Lockhart joins the show from uh, Hoboken. How you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Let's get it on this evening. (laughs) Let's get it. (laughs) I'm not going to lie, this was an impromptu session, so like, I didn't prepare like any smartness. Like all my all my dumbness is here right now. I so <laughs> I just want to let you know. <laughs> all right, so Greg Gatsby, chapter three. Um, let's do a quick like um last time on. So uh we meet Nick, our narrator. He moves next door to Gatsby. He hasn't met Gatsby yet, but his cousin Daisy, she lives across the pond with her awful husband Tom. Tom is cheating on Daisy with a uh the wife of a mechanic, uh, Myrtle. And in the last chapter, they had like this party downtown because back then they didn't do anything because they couldn't do anything. So they just went to places and drank. Uh, and there was a fight. And of course, Tom punched Myrtle. And uh, Nick was like, I'm out of here, girl. And got in a train. Did they have trains? Yeah, they had trains back then. All right. <laughs> <laughs> chapter three. There was music from my neighbor's house through the summer nights. In his blue gardens, men and girls came and went like moths among the whisperings and the champagne and the stars. At high tide in the afternoon, I watched his guests diving from the tower of his raft or taking the sun on the hot sand of the beach while his two motorboats slid the waters of the sound, drawing aquaplanes over cataracts of foam. This is not New York City today, right? This does this sounds too fancy. This is like Martha's Vineyard, right? I just aren't all boat, boats water boats? Like I'm so <laughs> My boat is a water boat. Um okay. <laughs> On weekends his Rolls-Royce became an omnibus bearing parties to and from the city between 9 in the morning and long past midnight. Oh, the gas. Can you imagine the gas? An omnibus that means that cars run around the city all day and all night like an airplane shuttle? Yeah. Or a wedding shuttle. <laughs> Sounds more efficient than like your wedding shuttles. But uh, now I just picture him like the Great Gatsby parties, and like there's like a little shuttle guy who's like, the bus is about to leave. And they're all like flapping and like having champagne. But a Rolls Royce, I think, only fits what up to like four or five people. Wait, how me? do you know? Have you been in a Rolls Royce? <laughs> I've never been in a Rolls Royce. When did you go into Rolls Royce? No, it's just when you see like the videos, like they're always like, it's like two here, two there, maybe. And then one in the front, if they're allowed to sit with the driver, I don't know. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't like the idea of you being a car expert all of a sudden. Where the fuck did that come from? <laughs> You're like, actually, I know about like stick and shift. I'd be like, what the fuck? <laughs> uh, where were we? 
Oh, while his station wagon scampered like a brisk yellow bug to meet all the trains. Oh, he has a station wagon, like a mom van. Oh, is this Gatsby? Yeah, Gatsby has the cars. Oh, I guess. Okay. Yeah. This makes way more sense to have this like Omni bus experience. Okay. I just like the idea of knowing someone who's like, they're like, come to my house for the party and I will have my Rolls Royce pick you up. Oh my gosh. And on Mondays, eight servants, including an extra gardener, toiled all day with mops and scrubbing brushes and hammers and garden shears, repairing the ravages of the night before. Oh, that sucks. You know they're getting paid a dime a day to like get like the dirty panties out of the shrubbery. <sighs> which you know we do for free already. <laughs> Stop! <laughs> Jess's mom, who's listening to this podcast, is like, oh, Lord. No, my mom would be like, Jessica doesn't wear underwear. I've been trying to get her to wear it for years. <laughs> it reminds me of, uh, you remember that the documentary Making a Murderer? Remember on Netflix? And it was the guy who was accused of murder, but he like probably didn't do the murder, but everyone thinks he did the murder. One of the facts, they were like, we found his underwear, blah, 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 or whatever. And they were like, well, it couldn't have been our client because he doesn't wear underwear. Like, imagine that being your defense. Like, someone's like, <laughs> we found your underwear. Like, your I was alibi. at the party. I had the knife in my hand, but I don't wear underwear. <laughs> so we found your underwear at the scene of the crime. Well, tricks on you. I'm in, in commando. Um, Every Friday, five crates of oranges and lemons arrived from a fruitier in New York. A fruitier? Is that what we call people who sell fruit? Yeah. It's, it's a thing. I was at the gay bar this weekend. I think I saw a couple of fruitiers there, too. Oh. Uh, every Monday, these same oranges and lemons left his back door in a pyramid of pulpous halves. Been there. <laughs> there was a machine in the kitchen which could extract the juice of 200 oranges in half an hour if a little button was pressed 200 times by a butler's thumb. At least once a fortnight, a core of, of caterers came down with several hundred feet of canvas and enough colored lights to make a Christmas tree of Gatsby's enormous garden. On buffet tables garnished with glistening hors d'oeuvres, spiced baked hams crowded against salads of harlequin designs. What is a salad of a harlequin design? It's like a slutty salad? I think it's just like a fancy, well Breast salad. <laughs> no offense to salads. I love a good salad. I've never had like a fancy salad. Like what what does a fancy salad look like? Like a lobster? Probably a salad that has more than like one ingredient in it. <laughs> I put tomatoes and cheese on my salad. Oh, yeah, it's a Harlequin so design salad. You know, like a Ooh. cob salad. Jess, you might like this. They had pastry pigs. <laughs> <laughs> Also, my name when I've had more than three pastries in one day. Um, <laughs> pastry pigs and turkeys bewitched to a dark gold. In the main hall, a bar with a real brass rail was set up and stocked with gins and liquors and with cordials so long forgotten that most of his female guests were too young to know one from another. Oh, I don't like that. I, ooh, that's what does that mean? Um, I think it's like cordials that were like so ancient, like ancient cocktails that like the young girls were like, I don't know what that is, which is well, why really... wouldn't the guys know what that is either? Uh, no, it's just most of his female guests. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, the male guests apparently were old. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I'm a little I'm a little uncomfy. Uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald. Uh, by seven o'clock, the orchestra has arrived. Uh, an orchestra pulled up to your house. Even <laughs> rich people don't do that shit anymore. Uh, no orchestra. Well, an orchestra really is only three people. 
right? Well, it says no like, thin five piece affair, but a whole pit full of oboes and trombones and saxophones and violas and cornets and piccolos and low and high drums. Oh, they had a whole pit. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> That was back when that was back when people who like did artsy stuff for a living could get paid for it. You know, like these days we're like, we don't need a violist. But back then they didn't have anything to do. They just got a violist. Yeah, it's crazy. They didn't have iPhones. They could just like hook up to an ox. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine going back there with like a Bluetooth speaker and being like, guys, I'm about to fuck your lives up. They're like, do you guys want to? <laughs> it's like the the work from home for the orchestra pit. You 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 hook up your you go back in time. Mm-hmm. You hook up your phone, and they're just pretending like the whole time <laughs> while they're like wasted. <laughs> oh my god! Um, the last swimmers have come up in from the beach now and are dressing upstairs. The cars from New York are parked five deep in the drive, and already the halls and salons and verandas are gaudy with the primary colors and hair shorn in strange new ways and shawls beyond the dreams of Castel. The bar is in full swing and floating rounds of cocktails permeate the garden outside until the air is alive with chatter and laughter and casual innuendo. Love that. And introductions forgotten on the spot. Uh, been there. And enthusiastic. <laughs> the, amount, the amount of times, especially when I'm at a party, when they're like, hi, my name's so-and-so. And I'm like, I ain't gonna remember that. I'm like, fuck. Like, I hate being in that spot. Um, And enthusiastic meetings between women who never, never knew each other's names. Oh. The lights grow brighter, brighter. Ooh, the lights grow brighter as the earth lurches away from the sun. And now the orchestra is playing yellow cocktail music and the opera of voices pitches a high, high key higher. Laughter is easier minute by minute, spilled with prodig- pro- prodigality. Prod- Spell it out. <laughs> prod- prodigal- prodigality. Okay, we're looking up this fucking word. I've never seen this word in my life. Prod. Fragility, the quality of spending or using large amounts of money time in a way that's not very wise. Oh, oh you're you're not rich enough to know <laughs> you know to know <laughs> I can't even talk. You're not even rich enough to know how to pronounce the word. <laughs> Bitch, I don't know. You seem pretty prodigality to me, girl. You spend a lot of money on shit. I'm like, how do you afford that? <laughs> um, okay. Tipped out in a cheerful world, the groups change more swiftly, swell with new arrivals, dissolve and form in the same breath. Already there are wanderers, confident girls who weave here and there among the stouter and more stable. What? <laughs> Apparently some thin girls are just like walking in between the fat ones. Like, <laughs> I can get around everyone because I'm <laughs> I know. What kind of high school ass party is this? Jesus. <laughs> Uh, become for a sharp, joyous moment the center of the group, and then, except with triumph, glide on through the sea change of faces and voices and color under the constantly changing lights. Suddenly, one of the gypsies. Oh, that's a slur word. We're not going to. Well, I'm going to read it, but we're not. I'm not. Just FYI, I don't approve of it. I mean, it's 1921 book, so just a little context. But in trembling, Opal seizes a cock. Oh, seizes a cocktail out of the. <laughs> The word was split. I was like, she seized it. Okay. She seized it. Start the sentence over. (laughs) Suddenly, one of the gypsies in trembling opal seizes a cocktail out of the air, dumps it down for courage, and, moving her hands like Frisco, dances out alone on the canvas platform. A momentary hush. Hush. The orchestra leader varies his rhythm. Obling. 
uh, obligingly, like he's obligated. But what's obligin, 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 (laughs) oh my, Jesus Christ. Uh, I can't help you. Oh, obligingly. There we go. It's also another word that's split and it looks weird when it's split with a hyphen. The orchestra leader varies his rhythm obligingly for her, and there's a burst of chatter as the erroneous news goes around that she is Glitter Gray's understudy from Follies. Oh, the party has begun. I believe that on the first night I went to Gatsby's house, I was one of the few guests who actually had been invited. People were not invited. They just went there. They got into automobiles, which bore them. Can you imagine? Okay, listen. I feel like I, in the 1920s. Sorry, so I can come. <laughs> I feel like in the 1920s, you can get away with like, I'm just here. Like, I just roll up. And, you know, especially if you know your friend has parties, you just go to the parties. Can you imagine if I was like in bed right now and I heard a knock at the door and there was like five people like, we're here to party. I'd be like, you skanks get off my lawn. Well, that happened before in college, Matt, where I showed up 24 hours to one of your parties early. <laughs> well, that was funny. That was hilarious. And you were all dressed to the theme. You're like, I'm here. Like, yeah. she has arrived. And we were like, for what? And then I had, like, it was, like, a themed party. And I was dressed for it. And you guys were all, like, in your pajamas. Like, that's tomorrow. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I cannot attend tomorrow. <laughs> but I'm here now. <laughs> but Once they had been introduced by somebody who knew Gatsby, and after that they had conducted themselves according to the rules of behavior associated with amusement parks. Sometimes they came and went without having met Gatsby at all, came for the party with a simplicity of heart that was its own ticket of admission. I had actually been invited. Okay, we get it. You were fucking invited. Jesus. A chauffeur in a uniform of a Robin's. She, this is like the girl who's like, my fiance and I, my fiance and I, my fiance. It's like, we know. Get it. I was with Tom, my fiance, bitch. We know. A chauffeur in a uniform of Robin's egg blue, a very underrated color, crossed my lawn early that Saturday morning with a surprisingly formal note from his employer. The honor would be entirely Gatsby's, it said, if I would attend his little party that night. He had seen me several times and had intended to call on me long before, but a peculiar combination of circumstances had prevented it. Signed, Jay Gatsby, in a (coughs) majestic hand. Dressed up in white flannels. Oh, God. Oh, God. White flannels. Something could be, like, warm. White flannels. That's just the epitome of, like, oh, God. Anyway. It sounds like the next right now, actually. (laughs) Wait, what does it sound like? I missed it. Next trend. Oh, maybe. I mean, what comes around goes around. I went over to his lawn for a little after seven and wandered around rather ill at ease among swirls and eddies of people I didn't know. Through here and there was a face I had noticed on the commuting train. I was immediately struck by the number of young English men dotted around, all well-dressed, all looking a little hungry, and all talking in low, earnest voices to solid and prosperous Americans. I was sure that they were selling something, bonds or insurance or automobiles, They were at least agonizingly aware of the easy money in the vicinity and convinced it was theirs for a few words in the right key. As soon as I arrived, I made an attempt to find my host, but the two or three people of whom I asked his whereabouts stared at me in such an amazed way and denied so vehemently any knowledge of his movements that I slunk off in the direction of the cocktail table, the only place in the garden where a single man could linger without looking purposeless and alone. 
I was on my way to get roaring drunk from sheer embarrassment when Jordan Baker came out of the house and stood at the head of the marble steps, leaning a little backward and looking with contemptuous interest down into the garden. Welcome or not, I found it necessary to attach myself to someone before I should begin to address cordial remarks to the passers-by. Hello, I roared, advancing towards her. My voice seemed unnaturally loud across the garden. I thought you might be here, she responded absently as I came up. I remembered you lived next door to... She held my hand impersonally as a promise that she'd take care of me in a minute and gave ear to two girls in twin yellow dresses who stopped at the foot of the steps. Hello, they cried together. Sorry you didn't win. That was for the golf tournament. Jordan had lost in the finals the week before. We don't know. You don't know who we are, said one of the girls in yellow. Oh, but we met you here about a month ago. You've dyed your hair since then remarked Jordan. And I, I love how, of course, the female golfer notices when the girl dyes her hair. Hmm. Suspicious. Or just girls, do girls recognize hair like that that easily? For sure. For sure. I would say so. A stranger? Okay, I don't know. Wait, that they dyed it recently and it was a stranger and they've never met before? Mm-hmm. I mean, I could tell if somebody has fake hair or if their hair is... <laughs> <laughs> I like I like how uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald wanted to write her roots were showing but didn't know the <laughs> vernacular. <laughs> and I started, but the girls had moved on casually, and her remark was addressed to the premature moon, produced with the soup soup supper, no doubt, of a caterer's basket. With Jordan's slender golden arm resting in mine, we descended the steps and sauntered about the garden. A tray of cocktails floated at us through the twilight, and we sat down at a table with the two girls in yellow and three men, each one introduced to us as Mr. Mumble. Do you do you come to these parties often? inquired Jordan of the girl beside her. The last one was the one we met you at, answered the girl in an alert, confident voice. She turned to her companion. Was it for you, Lucille? It was for Lucille, too. I like to come. Lucille said. I never care what I do, so I always have a good time. When I was here last, I tore my gown on a chair, and he asked me my name and address. Inside of a week, I got a package from Croyers with a new evening gown in it. Did you keep it? asked Jordan. Sure I did. I was going to wear it tonight, but it was too big in the bust and had to be altered. It was gas blue with lavender beads. $265. There's something funny about a fellow that'll do that to the other girl eagerly. He doesn't want any trouble with anybody. Who doesn't? I inquired. Gatsby, someone told me. The two girls and Jordan leaned together confidently. Somebody told me they thought he killed a man once. A thrill passed all over. A thrill passed over all of us. The three Mr. Mumbles bent forward and listened eagerly. I don't think it's so much that, argued Lucille skeptically. It's more that he was a German spy during the war. One of the men nodded in confirmation. I heard from a man who knew all about him, grew up with him in Germany, he assured us positively. Oh, no, said the first girl. It couldn't be that, because he was in the American army during the war. As her credulity switched back to her, she leaned forward with enthusiasm. You look at him sometimes when he thinks nobody's looking at him. I bet he killed a man. She narrowed her eyes and shivered. Lucille shivered. We all turned and looked around for Gatsby. It was testimony to the romantic speculation he inspired that there would be whispers about him from those who found little that it was necessary to whisper about in this world. The first supper, there would be another one after midnight, uh, me, every day, was now being served, and Jordan invited me to join her own party, who was spread around a table on the other side of the garden. 
There were three married couples in Jordan's escort, a persistent undergraduate given to violent innuendo, and obviously under the impression that sooner or later, Jordan was going to yield him up her person to a greater or lesser degree. Instead of rambling, this party had preserved a dignified homogeneity. Um, homogen- um, oh my gosh, this book is filled with some tough words today. I know that we probably knew in high school. <laughs> well, homogeneous is when it's all the same. So homogeneity is just like the the form, uh, basically this idea like it was all it was very you know same party like it was kind of lame, uh, and assumed to itself the function of representing the the staid nobility of the countryside, East Egg co- condescending to West Egg and carefully on guard against its spectroscopic gaiety, spectroscopic gaiety, what? been there. What? <laughs> what does that even mean? Um, well, gaiety back then was like kind of happy. So I think spectroscopic means like happiness under. Um, so skeptoscopy, it's the study of interaction of light and matter. So it's kind of like studying, I guess, like, you know, the fun of I don't know. what's going on. I don't love it. I don't love it. <laughs> let's let's get out, whispered Jordan after a somehow wasteful and inappropriate half hour. This is much too polite for me. We got up, and she explained that we were going to find the host. I had never met him, she said, and it was making me uneasy. The undergraduate nodded in a cynical, melancholy way. The bar, where we glanced first, was crowded, but Getsu was not there. She couldn't find him from on top of the stairs, and he wasn't on the veranda. On a chance, we tried an important-looking door and walked into a high Gothic library, paneled with English oak and probably transported, complete from some ruin overseas, and a stout, middle-aged man with enormous owl eyes, spectacles, was sitting somewhat drunk on the edge of a great table, staring with unsteady concentration at the shelves of books. As we entered, he wheeled excitedly around and examined Jordan from head to foot. Um, I want to make—I don't know if this is him or not. I, I don't want to give Gatsby a bad voice. Okay, here we go. <laughs> what do you think? He demanded impetuously. <laughs> About what? He waved his hand towards the bookshelves. About that. As a matter of fact, you needn't be bothered to a certain. I ascertained the real. The books? He nodded. Absolutely real. Have pages and everything. I thought they'd be a nice, durable cardboard. Matter of fact, they're absolutely real pages. And here, let me show you. Taking our skepticism for granted, he rushed to the bookcases and returned with volume one of the Stoddard Lectures. See? He cried triumphantly. It's a butterfly piece of printed matter. It fooled me. This fellow's a regular Belcasso. It's a triumph. What thoroughness. What realism. Knew when to stump to. Didn't cut the pages. But what do you want? What do you expect? He snatched the book from me and replaced it hastily on the shelf, muttering that if one brick was removed, the whole library was liable to collapse. Who brought you? He demanded. Oh, did you just come? I was brought. Most people were brought. Jordan looked at him alertly, cheerfully, without answering. I was brought by a woman named Roosevelt. He continued, Miss Claude Roosevelt, do you know her? I met her somewhere last night. I've been drunk for about a week now, and I thought it might suit me to sit in the library. Has it? A little bit, I think. I can't tell yet. I've been here an hour. Did I tell you about the books? They're real. They're... He told us. We shook hands with them gravely and went back outdoors. There was Dan... Oh, okay, so maybe that wasn't Gatsby. I wasted a good voice on a meaningless character. I'm pissed. All right. There was Yancey now on the campus in the garden. Old men pushing young girls backwards in eternal graceless circles. Superior couples holding each other torturously, fashionably, keeping in the corners. 
and a great number of single girls dancing individualistically or relieving the orchestra for a moment of the burden of the banjo of the taps. By midnight, the hilarity had increased. A celebrated tenor had sung in Italian, a notorious contralto had sung in jazz, and between the numbers, people were doing stunts all over the garden, while happy, vacatious bursts of laughter rose towards the summer sky. A pair of stage twins, who turned out to be the girls in yellow, did a baby act in costume, and champagne was served in glasses bigger than finger bowls. The moon had risen higher, and floating in the sound was a triangle of silver scales, trembling a little to the stiff, tinny drip of the banjos in Milan. I was still with Jordan Baker. We were sitting at a table with a man about my age and a rowdy little girl who gave way upon the slightest provocation to uncontrollable laughter. I was enjoying myself now. I had taken two finger bowls of champagne, and the scene had changed before my eyes into something significant, elemental, and profound. At a lull in the entertainment, the man looked at me and smiled. Your face is familiar, he said politely. Weren't you in the third division during the war? Why, yes, I was in the 9th Machine Gun Battalion. I was in the 7th Infantry until June 1918. I knew I'd seen you somewhere before. We talked for a moment about some wet, gray little villages in France. Evidently, he lived in this vicinity, for he told me that he had just bought a hydroplane and was going to try it out in the morning. Want to go with me, old sport? Just near the shore along the sound? <laughs> what time? Any time that suits you best. It was on the tip of my tongue to ask his name when Jordan looked around and smiled. Having a gay time now, she inquired. <laughs> Much better. I turned to my new acquaintance. This is an unusual party for me. I haven't even seen the host. I, I live over there. I waved my hand at the invisible hedge in the distance. And this man Gatsby sent over here a chauffeur with an invitation. For a moment, he looked at me as if he failed to understand. I'm Gatsby, he said suddenly. What? I explained. Oh, oh med pardon. No, I'm kidding. He said, oh, I beg your pardon. I thought you knew old sport. I'm afraid I'm not a very good host. He smiled understandably. A panty dropper. No, I'm <laughs> I like how your face, you're like, oh, God damn, get through this goddamn chapter. <laughs> no, no. I... Just, your um, Gatsby voice is just very entertaining. Very sexy. He smiled understandably, much more than understandably. It was one of those rare smiles with a quality of eternal reassurance in it that you may come across four or five times in life. It faced or seemed to face the whole external world for an instant and then concentrate on you with an irresistible prejudice in your favor. It understood you just so far as you wanted to be understood, believed in you as you would like to believe in yourself, and assured you that it had precisely the impression of you that at your best you hoped to convey. Precisely at that point, it vanished, and I was looking at an elegant young roughneck, a year or two over thirty, whose elaborate formality of speech just missed being absurd. And some time before he introduced himself, I'd gotten a strong impression that he was picking his words with care. Almost at that moment when Mr. Gatsby identified himself, a butler hurried toward him with the information that Chicago was calling on the wire. He excused himself with a small bow that included each of us in turn. If you want anything... Just ask for it, old sport, he urged me. Excuse me, I will rejoin you later. When he was gone, I turned immediately to Jordan, constrained to assure her of my surprise. I had expected that Mr. Gatsby would be a florid and corpulent person in his middle years. Who is he? I demanded. Do you know? He, he's just a man named Gatsby. 
Where is he from? I mean, what is he? Oh, where is he from? I mean, and what does he do? Oh, no. Okay. That's weird. It flipped the lines. The lines in this text are wrong. Who is he? I demanded. He's just a man named Gatsby. Where is he from? I mean, and what does he do? Now you're sat on the subject. She answered with a wan smile. Well, he told me he was an oxen man. A dim background started to take shape behind him, but her next remark faded away. However, I don't believe it. Why not? I don't know, she insisted. I just don't think he went there. This is like when you meet a hot guy and you turn to your friends and you're like, did I just meet that hot guy? And your friends are like, no, girl, he wasn't hot. But you're like, no, he was hot. And they're like, no, he wasn't hot. Yeah. Where was I? I totally lost pace because I'm like, you know, he's getting the he's getting the crush. You're like, he just told me he went to Oxford. He's like, no, he didn't. Just like, okay. No, girl, he's a piece of shit. Uh (laughs) Coming from another place. (laughs) I don't know. Should we do like a millennial Great Gatsby like version, like a screenplay of like what Great Gatsby would look like these days? It would be like somebody who just got funding for their startup. Cryptocurrency guy. and they're just like blowing through it. And he said he he said he he runs a business. He's a crypto king. I that's not a business. <laughs> Something in her tone reminded me of the other girls. I think he killed a man and had the effect of stimulating my curiosity. I would have accepted without question the information that Gatsby had sprang from the swamps of Louisiana or from the Lower East Side of New York. That was comprehensible, but young men didn't, at least in my provincial inexperience, I believe they didn't drift coolly out of nowhere and buy a palace on Long Island Sound. Anyway, he gives large parties, said Jordan, changing the subject with an urbane distaste for the concrete. And I like large parties. They're so intimate. At small parties, there's never any privacy. There was a boom of a bass drum, and the voice of the orchestra leader rang out suddenly above the echola of the garden. Ladies and gentlemen, he cried, at the request of Mr. Gatsby, we're going to play for you Mr. Vladimir Tostev's latest work, which attracted so many attention at Carnegie Hall last May. If you read the papers, you know there's a big sensation. He smiled with jovial condensation and added, Some sensation! Whereupon everyone laughed. The piece is known, he concluded lustily, as Vladimir Tostev's jazz history of the world. The nature of Mr. Tostev's composition eluded me. Because just as it began, my eyes fell on Gatsby, standing alone on the marble steps and looking from one group to another with approving eyes. His tanned skin was drawn attractively tight on his face, and his short hair looked as though it was trimmed every day. I could see nothing sinister about him. I wondered if the fact that he was not drinking helped to set him off from his guests, for it seemed to me that he grew more correct as the fraternal hilarity increased. When the jazz of the hist- when the jazz history of the world was over, girls were putting their hand heads on men's shoulders in a puppyish, convenial way. Girls were swooning backwards playfully into men's arms, even into groups, knowing that someone would arrest their falls, but no one swooned backwards on Gatsby. No French bob touched Gatsby's shoulder, and no sing- singing quartets were formed with Gatsby's head for one link. I beg your pardon? Gatsby's butler was standing suddenly beside his Mrs. Baker. He inquired, I beg your pardon, Mrs. Baker, but Mr. Gertz would like to speak to you alone. With me, she exclaimed in surprise. But he's the one with the boner for him. No, I'm kidding. That's not the line. Oh, I was. <laughs> <laughs> yes, madam. 
Jordan got up slowly, raising her eyebrows at me in an astonishment, and followed the butler towards the house. I noticed that she wore her evening dress, all her dresses, like sports clothes. There was a jauntiness about her movement, as if she had first learned to walk upon golf courses on clean, crisp mornings. I was alone, and it was almost two. For some time, confused and intriguing sounds had issued from a long, many-windowed room which overhung the terrace, eluding Jordan's undergraduate, who was now engaged in an obstetrical conversation with two chorus girls, and who implored me to join him. I went inside. The large room was full of people. One of the girls in yellow was playing the piano, and beside her stood a tall, red-haired young lady from a famous chorus engaged in a song. She had drunk a quantity of champagne, and during the course of her song, she had decided ineptly that everything was very, very sad. She was not only singing, she was weeping, too. Whenever there was a a pause in the song, she filled it with gasping, broken sobs, and then took up the lyric again in a quavering soprano. The tears coursed down her cheeks, not freely. However, when they came in contact with her heavily bearded eyelashes, they assumed an inky color and pursued the rest of the way in slow, black rivulets. A humorous suggestion was made that she sang the notes on her face, whereupon she threw up her hand, sank in a chair, and went off into a deep, vinous sleep. She had a fight with a man who says he's not... She's had a fight with a man who says he's a husband, explained a girl at my elbow. I looked around. Most of the remaining women were now having fights with men said to be their husbands. Even <laughs> Jordan's part. <laughs> oh, my God. Been there with you. <laughs> I've never been married. <laughs> <laughs> I remember. It was this one. The book. <laughs> Am I allowed to tell the story? Am I allowed to tell the story of you? Okay. I'm going to no, sell it. And if you don't. Nope. Nope. No, please continue to read such a good story. Book. Okay. We'll see. We'll see. The two <laughs> listeners are so curious. Like, what was the story? Um. <laughs> I'm sure there's going to be another fight in the book. I'll warm up to the idea of it. But um, so ladies this were book, all of a sudden. Yeah, arguing. this book is filled with fights. Um, even Jordan's party, the quartet from East Egg, were rent asunder by dissension. One of the men was talking with curious intensity to a young actress and his wife after attempting to laugh through the situation in a dignified and indifferent way, broke down entirely and resorted to flank attacks. At intervals, she appeared suddenly at his side like an angry diamond and hissed, you promised, into his ear. The reluctance to go home was not confined to wayward men. The hall was at present occupied by two deplorably sober men and their highly indignant wives. Though, see, he's he's a woman hater. I'm sorry if he's Is, not. What do you call them? Highly indignant wives. What does that mean? Indignant's like stubborn, like like uppity, like attitude. They promised they would go home by a certain time. I don't think that's being stuck up or. No, it's the opposite. The wives want to stay and the husbands want to go. Oh, okay. The wives were sympathizing and with each other in slightly raised voices. Whenever he sees I'm having a good time, he wants to go home. Never had anyone so selfish in my life. Does it actually say that? Yeah. Always the first ones to leave. So are we. We were almost the last tonight, said one of the men ske- ske- uh, ske- sheepishly. It's like every girl's fight ever then because the girls just want to have fun. <laughs> like, like, Cindy Lauper was at this party and that's what she wrote the song about. <laughs> I know, right? Oh like, my God. Literally, it's like, I'll go home as soon as I like pass out. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, but here's the thing. like, If I have a, a partner and we're going to canoodle after the party, I'd be like, okay, let's go home. <sighs> You know what I mean? Like, but I, why can't we canoodle before and after? I'm sure true. she's still down. I'm sure true. she's still down. He's just the old tired plug. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, with all these men, the men are like, I want to go home. Um, 
In spite of the wives' agreement that such malvoyance was beyond credibility, the dispute ended in a short struggle, and both wives were lifted, kicking into the night. Oh, God, embarrassing. As I waited for my hat in the hall, the door of the library opened, and Jordan Baker and Gatsby came out together. He was saying some last word to her, but the eagerness in his manner tightened abruptly into formality as several people approached him to say goodbye. Jordan's party were calling impatiently to her from the porch, but she lingered for the moment to shake hands. I've just heard the most amazing thing, she whispered. How long were we in there? Why, about an hour. It was simply amazing, she repeated abstractedly. But I swore I wouldn't tell it, and here I am, tantalizing you. She yawned gracefully in my face. Please come and see me. Phone book under the name of Miss Sigourney Howard, my aunt. She was hurrying off as she talked. Her brown hair waved a jaunty salute as she melted into her party at the door. Rather ashamed that on my first appearance I had stayed so late, I joined the last of Gatsby's guests who were clustered around him. I wanted to explain that I had hunted him early in the evening and to apologize for not having known him in the garden. Don't mention it. He enjoyed me eagerly. Don't give it any other thought, old sport. The familiar <laughs> expression held no more familiarity than the hand which reassuringly brushed my shoulder. And don't forget... We're going up in the hydroplane tomorrow morning at nine o'clock. Then the butler behind his shoulder. Philadelphia wants you on the phone, sir. <laughs> All right. In a minute. Tell him I'll be right there. It's my weekly. <laughs> Good night. G- Good night. Good night. He smiled. And suddenly there seemed to be a pleasant significance in having, having been among the last to go. As if he had desired it all this time. Good night, old sport. Good night. But as I walked down the steps, I saw that the evening was not quite over. Fifty feet from the door, a dozen headlights illuminated a bizarre, tumultuous scene. In the ditch beside the road, right side up, but violently shorn of one wheel, rested a new couple, which had left Gatsby's drives not two minutes before. The sharp jut of a wall accounted for the detachment of the wheel, which was now getting considerable attention from half a dozen curious chauffeurs. However, as they let their cars blocking the road, a harsh, distant din from those in the rear had been audible for some time and added to the already violent confusion of the scene. A man in a long duster had dismounted from the wreck and now stood in the middle of the road, looking from the car to the tire to the tire to the observers in a pleasant, puzzled way. They say, he explained, it went in the ditch. The fact was infinitely astounding to him, and I recognized, oh, and I had recognized first the unusual quality of wonder and then the man. It was the patron of Gatsby's library. How'd it happen? He shrugged his shoulders. I know nothing about mechanics, he said decisively. But how did it happen? Did you run to the wall? Don't ask me, said Owl Eyes, washing his hands of the whole matter. I know very little about driving, next to nothing. It happened. That's all I know. Well, if you're a poor driver, you wanted to be driving at night. I wasn't even trying, he explained in dignity. I wasn't even trying. An odd hush fell upon the bystanders. Do you want to commit suicide? Yeah. You're lucky it was just a wheel, a bad driver, and not even trying. You don't understand, explained the criminal. I wasn't driving. There's another man in the car. I don't even know what's happening. The shock that followed this declaration <laughs> followed. I'm just thinking, like, this is exactly like when an officer pulls me over. I'm just like, oh, uh, uh. <laughs> officer, I wasn't driving my drunk car. 
Like, Ooh. <laughs> Not that I would ever drive drunk, but just I, I wouldn't. I just be like I don't know what you're talking. Why are you pulling over? That wasn't no. There, that can't oh be. My gosh. <laughs> I have a I have a Jess cops pulled us over story, but I don't know. Should we save that one too? Do you really? What it year? was when? Okay, I'll tell it. It was it's it's pretty funny. I think you. I don't think you got ticketed, but we were in a turn left green light, and the car in front of us wasn't moving, and you were like. F this, and you went around the car to turn left, and oh. the cop pulled you over and was like, "Yeah, that guy was an asshole, but like, you can't do that." And you're like, "I'm so sorry, officer." I was probably like, "Why well, use my turn signal?" I was like, "Yeah, but you can't just like use your turn signal and do whatever you want." Oh wow! Yeah, that was some road rage out of you that day. It was a good day though. <laughs> the shock that followed this declaration found voice in a sustained ah. As the door of the coupe swung slowly open, the crowd, it was now a crowd, stepped back involuntarily, <laughs> and when the door had opened wide, there was a ghostly pause. Then, very gradually, part by part, a pale, dangling individual stepped out of the wreck, pawing tentatively at the ground with a large, uncertain dancing shoe. Blinded by the glare of the headlights and confused by the incessant groaning of the horns, the apparition stood swaying for a moment before he perceived the man in the duster. What's the matter? he inquired calmly. Did we run out of gas? Look! Half a dozen fingers pointed at the amputated wheel. He stared at it for a moment, and then he looked upward as though he suspected it had come from the sky. It came off, someone explained. He nodded. First, I didn't didn't notice we stopped. A pause. Then taking a long breath and straightening his shoulders, he remarked in a determined voice, Wonder if they'll tell me there's a gasoline station? At least a dozen men, some of them a little better off than he was, explained to him that the wheel and the car were no longer joined by any physical bond. Bang out, he suggested after a moment. Put her in reverse. But the wheel's off, he hesitated. No, I'm trying, he said. The caterwauling horns had reached a crescendo, and I turned away and cut across the lawn towards home. I glanced back once. A wafer of a moon was shining over Gatsby's house, making the night fine as before and surviving the laughter and the sound of his still-glowing garden. A sudden emptiness seemed to flow now from the windows, the great doors, endowing with complete isolation the figure of the host who stood on the porch, his hand up in a formal gesture of farewell. Reading over what I had written so far, I see I have given the impression that the events of three nights several weeks apart were all that absorbed me. On the contrary, they were merely casual events in a crowded summer, and until much later they absorbed me infinitely less than my personal affairs. Most of the time I worked. In the early morning, the sun threw my shadow westward as I hurried down the white chasms of lower New York to the Probury Trust. I knew the other clerks and young bond salesmen by their first names, lunch with them in the dark credit restaurants on little pig sausages and mashed potatoes and coffee. I even had a short affair with a girl who lives in Jersey City and worked in the accounting department, but her brother began throwing mean looks in my direction, so when she went on vacation in July, I let it blow quietly away. Or he was gay. I took dinner usually at the Yale Club, but for some reason, it was the gloomiest event of my day. And then I went upstairs to the library and studied investments and securities for a conscientious hour. There were generally a few rioters around, but they never came into the library. So it was a good place to work. And after that, if the night was mellow, I'd strolled down Madison Avenue past the old Murray Hill Hotel and over 33rd Street to Pennsylvania Station. I began to like New York. The racy, adventurous feel of it at night and the satisfaction that the constant flicker of men and women and machines gives the restless eye. I liked to walk up Fifth Avenue and pick out romantic women from the crowd and imagine that in a few minutes I was going to enter into their lives and no one would ever know or disapprove. And sometimes in my mind, I followed them to their apartments on corners of hidden streets. Okay, this is weird. Uh, Serial killer much? 
I like how Jess is like, when I do it, it's cute. When he does it, it's a felony. (laughs) I don't think I've ever imagined myself like entering someone's life that I see like to follow. Like, no, it's it's the opposite. You're like, you should want to enter my life. okay? like my life. Or it's like. I'm like, oh, okay. They'll like, I meet somebody. I'm like, oh, okay, I can see you leaving. <laughs> <laughs> not, not like, oh, I get, I completely understand why you'd leave. <laughs> it's like, I can see why you're walking away. <laughs> <laughs> At the enchanted metropolis in twilight, I felt a haunting loneliness sometimes and felt in others, poor young clerks who loitered in front of windows waiting until it was time for a solitary restaurant dinner, young clerks in the dusk wasting the most poignant moments of night and life. Again, at eight o'clock, when the dark lanes of the 40s were five deep with throbbing taxicabs bound for the theater district, I felt a sinking in my heart. Forms leaned together in the taxis as they waited, and voices sang, and there was laughter from unheard jokes and lighted cigarettes outlining unintelligible 70s gestures inside, imagining that I, too, was hurrying towards gaiety, sharing their immediate excitement. I wished them well. For a while, I lost sight of Jordan Baker, and then in midsummer, I found her again. At first, I was flattered to go to places with her because she was a golf champion and everyone knew her name. Then it was something more. I wasn't actually in love, but a sort of tender curiosity. The bored, haughty face that she turned to the world concealed something. Most affectionates conceal something eventually, even though they don't in the beginning. And one day I found what there was. When we were on a house party together up in Warwick, she'd left a borrowed car out in the rain with a top down and then lied about it. And suddenly I remembered the story about her that had eluded me that night at Daisy's. At her face, at her fist. At her first big golf tournament, there was a row that nearly reached the newspapers, a suggestion that she had moved her ball from a bad line in the semifinal round. That thing approached the proportions of a scandal and then died away. A caddy retracted a statement, and the only other witness admitted that he might have been mistaken. The incident and the name had remained together in my mind. Jordan Baker instinctively avoided clever, shrewd men, and now I saw that this was because she felt safer on a plane where any divergence from a code would be thought impossible. She was incurably dishonest. She wasn't able to endure being at a disadvantage, and given this unwillingness, I suppose she'd begun dealing in subterfuges when she was very young in order to keep that cool, insolent smile turned to the world and yet satisfy the demands of her hard, jaunty body. It made no difference to me. Dishonesty in a woman is a thing you never blame deeply. Oh, okay. <laughs> a little too picky. I don't like her because she lies once in a while. Okay, calm down, Mr. Perfect. I was casually wait, make it. <laughs> wait, what'd you say? So you gotta fake it till you make it. So <laughs> right. But we've all like had a rental car situation where something's happened to the rental car and we're like, okay, we're gonna I be like that. it was with the car. We don't we don't, you know. Yeah. <laughs> the I got it like this. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, you got it without a front bumper. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I did. Pointed it out. <laughs> <laughs> wait, I didn't see that. <laughs> yeah. Um I was casually sorry, and then I forgot. It was on that same house party that we had a curious conversation about driving a car. It started because she passed so close to some workman that our fender flicked a button on one man's coat. You're a rotten driver, I protested. Either you want to be more careful or you want to drive at all. I am careful. No, you're not. Well, other people are, she said lightly. What's that got to do with it? They'll keep out of my way, she insisted. It takes two to make an accident. Where where did she go to the the Trump school of driving? (laughs) 
well, if it takes two to make an accident, then that's saying like it's everyone's fault. I mean, it's, this feels like a Spice Girls song when they're like to become one. <laughs> <laughs> or imagine being like a kid and they're like, why am I here? And your mom goes, it takes two to make an accident. <laughs> so you and dad. <laughs> <laughs> Suppose uh, suppose you met someone just as careless as yourself. I hope I never will, she answered. I hate careless people. That's why I like you. Oh, opposites attract. Her gray, sun-strained eyes stared straight ahead, but she had deliberately shifted our relations, and for a moment, I thought I loved her. But I am slow thinking and full of interior rules that act as breaks on my desires, and I knew that first, I had to get myself definitely out of that tingle back home. I had been writing letters once a week and signing them, Love, Nick. And all I could think about was how, when that certain girl played tennis, a faint mustache of perspiration appeared on her upper lip. <gasps> Nevertheless, there was a vague understanding that I'd be tactfully broken off before I was free. Everyone suspects himself of at least one of the cardinal virtues, and this is mine. I am one of the few honest people that I have ever known. Oh, end of chapter three. What a high horse. This guy, I can... he's a little too much sometimes, don't you think? Also, I know golf's not a sport, but if she has a sweat mustache, it's probably because she's outside golfing. I, I mean, come on. I mean, golf is a sport, but it's just. Uh, I think it's like it's like playing pool. Like pool's a sport. Okay. Or like, I don't know. I, to me, like a sport means like you're losing weight. <laughs> you definitely gain weight playing golf. <laughs> yeah, baseball. Yep. Well, you run during baseball. You don't have to run when you golf, right? You can just walk. You just you drive. You actually drive those little carts. You don't even have to walk. True, anyway. but anyway, big- what what did we think of chapter three? At least we got to meet Gatsby finally. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. I mean, two things happened in this chapter, and then the rest of it was just like describing the party. Which, like, I mean, the descriptions are nice, but like. There was no plot. I mean, all we met was, Mr. Gatsby, it's me, it's me, your neighbor. Also, we didn't get to go on the romantic airplane ride. Missed opportunity. I mean, so. maybe chapter four has some more insights, but Ooh. it sounds like it's a lot more about the like townspeople still. And I'm pretty sure that's kind of probably be the theme throughout the whole book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm excited to keep reading it. We only have nine. We have nine chapters, so we have six chapters left. We are crushing this book. <laughs> it took four months. <laughs> well, the holidays, you got to subtract. You know, we, we took off for Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's and Valentine's Day. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love doing this so much. And I'm so glad to have you in my life, both as one of my closest friends, but also as one of my creative partners. So thank you for doing this for me. When we return, chapter four, will Nick come out? I don't know. Probably not. But uh, (laughs) I like how he describes Jordan as having a sweaty mustache. And then Gatsby's like, he had a smile. One of the rare smiles you'll never, ever see again in life. Okay, girl, roll it back. Like, save some for us. Like, my God. The way that I am noticing, the way that he describes, he'll be like, oh, that woman's gross. She she perspires. And then, like... (laughs) Gatsby has like a set of teeth. He's like, wow. <laughs> that woman is a liar. Yeah. I will not sleep with a woman who's a liar. <laughs> what? 
It's like, dude, she just didn't want to pay the car, like the down payment on the car rental. Like, come on. Like, <laughs> been there, boy. <laughs> Oh, I can't. All right. Well, hey, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Rebar Reads. And peace out. Peace out.